Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least. And a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. He told me around here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. And today on the pod, we have a really good friend of mine, Van Aston. Uh, Van is a uh, PA at the homeless shelter in. Ogden and has just some really unique experience dealing, uh, helping and serving those experiencing homelessness. And this is a community that I think is underserved and under um, underappreciated in our community. And just we, there needs to be some understanding about who they are and how we can better serve them. And Van just did a wonderful job explaining that to us. So this is part of the show where I just talk a little bit about something I've been learning about or something I've been thinking about. And we're in this huge time of social unrest. And I wanted to think back about what other sort of things happened last time we experienced this sort of social unrest, that time of the civil rights movement back in the mid 60s. And one of the things that cases that I came across was uh, Gideon versus Wainwright, which is a Supreme Court case uh, that was brought to the court by Clarence Earl Gideon. And Clarence Earl Gideon was accused of breaking into a pool hall and stealing coins from the jukebox and stealing some coins from the cigarette uh, machine and um, was arrested, tried, and found guilty. And what was interesting about his case was that uh, he only had an eighth grade education. He didn't have any money and was not able and had to represent himself in this case. And at the time, the law was that you're entitled to a lawyer, but the state did not have to provide you with one. So Clarence tries to defend himself and obviously does a very poor job. Uh, even the judge was trying to help him, and uh, but he, he couldn't do it, right? You can't go up against professionals uh, when you're not a professional. And so when he's in prison, for these crimes that he allegedly committed, he writes to the Supreme Court. And somehow, some way, the Supreme Court decides to hear his case. And it's interesting because there was a previous Supreme Court case that was known as Betts versus Brady, and it was in 1942, I believe. And Betts versus Brady decided the fact that the state didn't have to provide you with a lawyer, uh, even though you had a right to one. And it doesn't happen very often that the Supreme Court decides to overturn its precedent. But at the time, there had been a shift in public opinion. And so by the time this case gets brought to the Supreme Court, uh, Clarence Earl Gideon uh, now has one of the best attorneys that's provided to him by the state, and they win. And he gets retried and found uh, not guilty of his crimes. And so he's a free man. So. Ever since then, now it's just really, really common, really normal for us to think that, yeah, if you're not, if you can't afford an attorney, you've got to have a fair trial. And so you'll be provided one with, by the state. And think about that. Think about how big of a shift that is. I mean, you could just think a hundred years ago how people would be like, what do you mean? Like, we're going to provide, we're going to use government money to give attorneys to criminals? Like you could just you could just hear the backlash that would come from that, but over time, at a time of great social unrest, something changed, and a change is happening now. 
And that change that happened with Clarence Gideon, it's not perfect. Gideon versus Wainwright is not perfect. These state attorneys that you that you get assigned to cases if you don't have the money to pay for an attorney uh, are overworked. Sometimes uh, they, I've read a statistic that they only have about an hour to work on your case on average uh, in many of these states because they're just they just the caseload is too too great. So it's still you still don't get a, a fair trial compared to someone that has money. But it's a step in the right direction. And hopefully we have more steps in the right direction coming. And at this time of social unrest, I wonder what else is going to change. What else is going to shift? And I see shifts happening right now. And one of the shifts that we, we've seen happen is with healthcare. We now have an expansion in the expansion of Medicaid that Van talks about in our conversation and that allows more people have access to healthcare regardless of your income. And we are going to continue to see a shift, and that's a really, really important thing. Healthcare should be a universal right, and we're the richest country in the world. We should be able to provide healthcare for anyone that needs it. Obamacare is how I get my insurance, and it's another shift forward in the right direction. So I hope to see other further shifts at this time uh, that will allow us to better serve those who are underprivileged, and so that we might be able to live in a more fair, equitable, and just society. And if you want to learn more about Gideon versus Wainwright, check out the Constitutional Podcast by the Washington Post. They did a great job uh, covering that story in its entirety. So go check that out. Hey, everybody. Kevin here. I'm back. I've got my good friend Van here. And when I say that, this time I actually mean it. Uh, this is one of my really best friends, uh, Van, who I've known for quite many years now. We've had tons of many uh, great in-depth conversations. And Van is a person who has uh, a really interesting background. And this show is about uh, social justice, which means that we're about trying to spread uh, equality, trying to spread uh, a place where the world is better and Van has an experience with a, with a group of people who have it hard. And they have it hard for lots of various reasons, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk about some of those today. But Van, tell us what you do. Um, sure, so yeah, my name is Van and I am a physician assistant, a PA at Hope Clinic with the Midtown Community Health Center. And I provide free medical care for Ogden's homeless population. So when you say you're, you're the PA there, um, what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Is there, are, what, what are you doing there? So we are a full service clinic. Uh, we're open Monday through Friday. I'm there Tuesday through Friday. Um, we have mental health uh, services. Uh, we have a psychiatrist. We've got licensed clinical social workers. We have dental and we have medical and we have resources to help people navigate programs like Medicaid and um, other resources through the local, state and federal governments so they can get signed up for maybe some general assistance, financial assistance and things like that. So my day to day is uh, we open at 745, actually 740, our first patient's at 740. Um, and our clinic is walk-in based we opened five years ago, almost five years ago to the day, and we initially started with um, 
appointments only and quickly realized that that wouldn't work because people experiencing homelessness have no idea what time it is, nor do they really know what day it is. So it lasted about six months before we realized we had to go to a uh, walk-ins only, well, for the most part, walk-ins. We do have some schedulable appointments. Um, so yeah, I mean, I see a little bit of everything. Initially, I was supposed to be the, the medical provider only, and the mental health was supposed to go to our psychiatrist who's there on Mondays. But it turned out since I was there for four days out of, out of five, um, I ended up seeing the vast majority of the mental health patients as well. And so it's shifted and grown over time as we've gotten more experience and um, seen things that we didn't, maybe didn't expect. Um, we've also started so really quick. I just want to, I just want to interrupt you. Uh, so yeah. the, the hope clinic is a, a clinic that is at the homeless shelter here in Ogden. Is that correct? Yeah, we are on the second floor of the lantern house homeless shelter. Lantern House used to be St. Anne's um, and they built a new structure in 2015 is when it was finished and our clinic was built on the second floor and we Midtown received a very unique grant from the federal government that same year uh, specifically to open a clinic designed to help people experiencing homelessness and that was it like the primary goal was to treat these folks and so they got their funding just in time for the Lantern House to finish their construction and it worked out perfectly that we were able to um, get a clinic built in there before they finished construction. So we're on the second floor. And as the, the PA there, you're, you're the primary care provider for uh, the people that are, housed, or that, that are housed in that shelter and that come in and out of that shelter. Is that correct? Yep. yep. I'm, I'm the... PAs are typically set up with what's called a supervising physician, but uh, my supervising physician is not on site. I'm there Tuesday through Friday on my own uh, with my full staff and we work together whenever we get, um, yeah, we just work together to provide the best medical care possible for this uh, community. So tell me, I mean, you're, you're, what, you're, went to PA school. Uh, what year did you graduate from PA school? I graduated in December of 2011 um, out in Atlanta, Georgia from Emory University. So you're at Emory, um, you're, you're going to PA school. Uh, what did you envision uh, was gonna be your job when you, when you got out of PA school? Uh, so Emory was actually my, uh, I guess, sounding board for a lot of experiences. I, having grown up in a military family, but I was still pretty young when my dad retired in Utah. I thought I knew it all. I thought I had all the experience in the world. And then I got the opportunity to go to school in a city like Atlanta, Georgia, and had my eyes opened to a number of different things that I just didn't even realize were out there. And Emory specifically has a goal for their entire, their PA program has a goal to produce primary care providers. There's a lot of PA programs out there that produce surgical PAs or psych PAs or whatever else, but Emory since the day they started has been dedicated to filling the gap for primary care that exists in rural communities across the country. And they do it in a very unique way. They, they motivate um, their students through experiential learning. Um, and so what I mean by that is uh, the PA program was the catalyst for um, 
a pretty unique experience that happens there for two weeks every summer. It's called the um, Emory University uh, Migrant Farm Workers Project. And when I first got there, I, they started telling us about it. We weren't allowed to go as first years, but second and then our third summer, we were allowed to go. And you could volunteer for one week or two weeks. And this program had been established, I think, 15 or 20 years prior to when I got there. Um, they take volunteers, students, they take uh, med students, they take uh, pharmacy students and PT students. We get a whole bunch of donations from the community, clothing, uh, medications, all kinds of stuff. And we pack all of this stuff up and we'd go down to South Georgia, uh, to the deep south for two weeks and we'd provide free medical care for migrant farm workers that are moving through the area picking your tomatoes and your peppers and your corn and all of the food, the fresh produce that we enjoy at such a cheap uh, cost to us in our grocery store. And that alone caught my attention. And the first year I volunteered for both weeks and went down there and was just blown away. Um, one of the problems that a lot of people in medicine experience is going into this training with this altruistic goal of changing the world or changing healthcare for good and, and thinking you're going to make this big impact and then you get into it and you realize you're a small cog and a huge machine and your chance to make a difference is little to none and then you start to realize where you make a difference is on the individual one-on-one -on -one level and even then where can you have the biggest impact? And so I'm down in South Georgia. We're under tents, under lights at midnight, providing care for these individuals that had no money. They definitely didn't have health insurance. Most of them were undocumented um, working. Were you there you at know, midnight because they're working all day? And that yeah, was the best because time they were kidding? working all day. And that was when we could, that's when we could provide care for them. Wow. And you see true abject poverty. And these are people that are coming to this country to earn money and to send every as much as they can back to their children and they're spending some money here in our economy and they're sending some of it back to their children and their families but they're doing their best to provide which is what all of us try to do for our families is we do what we can to provide and it was a wake-up call for me it was it was truly the the hardest situation i think i could even imagine as far as trying to survive um, and so for two full weeks, we were down there in the fields. We literally drove to every different field in the area for all of the farm workers. And we spent every waking hour we could providing free medical care. And it, it was an opportunity for me to learn that there are chances in medicine to make a difference on an individual level um, where maybe I couldn't change the machine. Maybe I couldn't change the the broken nature of our system, but I could make a difference to the one person sitting right in front of me. So, so I mean, that's, that's pretty neat. I, I actually didn't know that about Emory that they, you know, their, their goals are to, to create primary care PAs because we PAs do all sorts of things, including mm -hmm. assisting surgeons and different, different other things. But that's, that's the, I think that's a really interesting, uh, I didn't know these kinds of programs existed and that they were, uh, trying to provide these experiences with for you and it worked and it, did. Yeah. it inspired you. And um, now you spend your days, you know, four days a week, um, full days 
uh, treating and caring for those experiencing homelessness. Um, yep. Tell me a little bit about what that's like. Who who are they? Who are these people? I mean, myself, I you know we don't get many interactions with homeless people. I think, or those experiencing homelessness. I think, you know, for the most part, we don't know about them. We're kind of maybe scared of who of them for some reason. And so yeah. when we when we kind of avert our eyes, we kind of go to the other side of the of the of the street, maybe. Um, and so we don't have that kind of one-on-one -on -one personal action, uh, interaction with someone experiencing homelessness very often. Uh, tell me what that's like. Uh, that's a pretty common experience for most people who aren't really quite sure what to think or how to interact. And, and the interesting thing is most of the people experiencing homelessness are feeling the same way about talking to people on the street. So um, it's, I don't, I don't know really how to describe what it's like because they're humans, they're people, and they're no different than me. They, they are sitting right in front of me looking for help, and I'm the person that can provide that for them. What, where the difference lies in, is in their lived experience. So we, you and I, are lucky. We live a life built on the shoulders of generations. And we benefit from those generations and the hard work that they put forth. You know, you and I are both independently um, hard workers and, and successful in our own right, but we are successful because of the generations that came before us. And the challenge that these folks run into is the generations before them were experiencing abject poverty. They experienced systemic um, racism or uh, they, they experienced intergenerational drug abuse, um, people who have both parents maybe in prison or one parent in prison and the other parent working three jobs just to pay rent. And you know, there's two other families living in the home with them. And so their lived experience is what really put them on the path that they are on. And that's really the difference. It's not, it's not different in that we are better than they are or, or anything along those lines. It's these generations of, of leading up to this point where we are where we are and they, they're fighting a battle that's different than anything we've ever experienced. And so for me to sit down in front of one of those individuals on a daily basis does a couple of different things. One, it reminds me of my privilege every single day. That's not a negative thing. Um, but it reminds me of the things that I had given to me. But it also reminds me that these individuals, these people are human. They deserve respect. They deserve to be treated with kindness. Um, and their life experience is far beyond anything I can fathom. No idea what it's like to have a mom in prison and dad working two jobs. I don't. I don't know what it's like to n not, not even have a dinner table to come home to or or you know, let alone wonder where your next meal is coming from. That I can't understand. I can look at them and say, I can see how that would be an incredibly different, difficult situation, but I have no idea what that's like. Um, right. And so it forces me, and it should force other people into the situation where if you're capable of stepping back and looking at them and listening to them and hearing them and hearing their experience and maybe 
reframing in your mind your expectations of somebody that had a life like this that's when things start to really kind of settle in and hit home about who this individual is and kind of who you are on the other side i mean i think i look at myself and my situation and i think most people it's hard for them to understand somebody who is homeless because because i mean if i had zero income tomorrow, lost my house, whatever, I would have so many people to fall back on, mm-hmm. you know, and as you put it, the people, generations before us, brothers and sisters that, that also were able to build their lives on those generations, um, friends that I was able to make because I'm in the place I'm at. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, it's almost unfathomable for me to think about, about, not having a place to live. And so I think that's why it's hard for uh, us to relate many people to relate to, to homelessness. So tell me what, like how, how did, how did most of these people get to be in, in the experience they are and why don't they, you know, this, this will be ignorant, but why don't they just get a job? Just get a job. Right. Okay. (laughs) So, Let me try and break this down into hopefully a little more basic, um, obviously oversimplified uh, topics, right? So there's there's subgroups, I would say, um, within the population of people that have their own different experiences as well. So let's say somebody that was born into into homelessness, for example, we'll we'll say, because that happens all the time. We know that. So this individual is born into homelessness and for whatever reason, their parents are also homeless, but let's focus on this individual, not that generation before them. This individual is raised in multiple different locations. They're living in an apartment here. uh, Then they have to leave because they couldn't pay rent. So they go to a hotel. Then they have to leave because they can't pay there. So they go to a shelter. Um, and then they have to leave there because the shelter's full. Um, and so this person is growing up in these experiences and trying to understand how to operate within their world. And their world is vastly different than what I experienced as a kid growing up. I knew my expectations. Let's say when I was in fifth grade, I knew my expectations. I knew I needed to be in school every day and I had assignments to work on and I had a teacher that I needed to talk to and I had things I had to do when I got home. I had a very outlined existence and and these folks don't experience that and so for us to expect them to make decisions like decisions that we would make is unrealistic because their lived experience is so different most of these people didn't get any formal training in how to work most of these people have little to no interpersonal social skills because they weren't taught it. They weren't provided those opportunities or even situations like we were um, to learn those interpersonal skills where we can communicate with somebody in an effective manner. Um, And so if we're talking about that as a basic fundamental uh, situation and then expecting them to function within a society as they get older is unrealistic. And so um, we talk a lot about, in in my profession, we talk a lot about what's called ACE scores. Uh, They're called adverse childhood events. And there's a number of different things that are qualified as an adverse childhood event. Um, Living in a divorced family, um, having a parent that has done drugs, 
um, having a parent that has been to jail or in prison, um, you know, talking about moving in the middle of school years and multiple moves um, and having kind of food insecurity. These are all adverse childhood events. And the higher the score is on this, the more adverse childhood events somebody has experienced, the more predictive that value is of future mental health and physical health is directly tied to their ability to function in our society. And so the more adverse childhood events they experience, the least likely they are going to be productive members of society, unless science and, and, and research has shown there's one person that steps in. All it takes is one, but if there's one person that steps in and says, hold on, I'm going to change your path, then it nearly removes all of those uh, factors. Um, but there are plenty of people in this world that never experienced that one person stepping in for them. And so all of these things that are built into my life, that are built into your life, this ability to just see somebody and start talking to them, for example, or understand the idea of when you have a boss, you listen to your boss and you respect the people above you and you do the things that you're asked to do, those are interpersonal skills that we were taught um, inadvertently. We didn't have power over that. And our parents were just putting us in these situations where we learn these things. We just learned them. It was part of our, learned, our lived experience. These folks don't ever get that. So if we're talking about this as a core individual, somebody that doesn't have mental health, genetic mental health disorders, somebody that doesn't have a genetic um, addiction disorder or disease, um, and you know, just a, a, a basic uh, difference in how they were raised, we're already talking about a massive gap in ability to function. Um, and so we have a lot of those individuals that were raised in abject poverty and just don't know how to get out of it. And then you get this comment of, well, just get a job. The problem is they were never taught those skills to operate within a job even something that you and I would think is super basic. Those skills are not there. And they're difficult to learn. They're even more difficult to learn as people get older and they struggle with it more as they get older. And so if there's not an intervention in, in somebody's life early on in the early years, it gets harder and harder and harder for them to learn these skills in a way that allows them to maintain a job. So if they can't maintain a job, they can't maintain an apartment. If they can't maintain an apartment, they're on the streets. And you know, these, this is the disconnect that we end up having of, well, I can do this, why can't they do it? Right. And the core difference is we were trained from when we were little, as soon as we could walk on how to do these interactions. Yeah, and, and I don't think we, we like understand that as training, right? Like we just like, that's just life. And so we don't, understand, we don't, we don't understand that people don't get that training. Yeah, and um, if you don't get that training, you can't you can't survive and compete, which is what life is. Yeah. You cannot compete against those who have had that training. How, so yeah, how much? I, go ahead, keep going. No, I get frustrated when I hear this. I'm a self-made person, and I hear it from somebody that comes from a successful home. You know, their parents, their dad, their mom, divorced parents, regardless, somebody's successful. Grandparents were successful other family members are successful and they come and they say, I'm a self-made person. And I want to stop them and say, well, hang on. I see that you've worked really hard for your success, but that removes your recognition of the people before you that set 
the stage for you to keep moving forward. Yeah, I mean, and we don't recognize that in ourselves and you know that you know my grandfather you know worked at hill and uh you know created a a, a you know very lower middle income class that that where my dad could then go to college and then you know and it just builds and and, and my life was it was i never thought i wasn't going to college you know it was just part of what was going to happen and so it was yep. all built into the into the it was all baked in the cake for me i mean yep. it, like it's all baked to the cake, you know. You still got to get out there at the end of the day and try to make something happen. But it's not like it's not that hard at that point. <laughs> like you've yeah. been given all the tools. Yeah, you know? exactly. And so, if let's say we take that same person that I just described and we throw another angle into it, we say, "I hate to break it to you, but Dad was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 26, and you're 25, and you're now experiencing things like severe paranoia. You're hearing voices." You're feeling things, you're sensing things that don't exist, but you may not know that they don't exist. So we're talking about the addition of severe mental health. So somebody that may or may not have skills in life to manage life anyway, suddenly gets diagnosed with a pretty severe illness, which by the way, is not a moral failing. Depression is not a moral failing. Anxiety is not a moral failing. Bipolar disorder is not a moral failing. Your brain can dysfunction just like your heart can just like your kidneys can, just like your lungs can. Another concept that's disease. hard for us to understand. Another, it's another hard concept that's hard for us to understand that like yeah. we, we oftentimes are gonna, you know, your heart aches for someone that gets diagnosed with cancer, yeah. um, but not in the same way when someone gets diagnosed oh. with anxiety or depression. Yeah, you say I have depression and it's suddenly a societal judging, a societal problem that, this, that we say, well, what, why can't you fix it? You know, what's wrong with you that you can't fix it? And I tell people this all the time in my practice. They sit down and say, why is this the way it is? Why am I the way I am? And I'll look at them and say, you know, I have Crohn's disease. It's an autoimmune disorder that attacks my, my gut. I don't, I don't have a choice in it, but I have to treat it. And so, unfortunately, your brain chemistry is abnormal, and you have to treat it. And we treat that with a lot of different options, right? medications and counseling and uh, experiential learning and things. But if you throw this mental health into an already disrupted life, not only can they not manage life in general, but they can't, they, they can't manage their mental health. And schizophrenia is an extreme example. Depression and anxiety are a common problem in people that grow up in unstable circumstances. And if you, if they're not even learning how to manage life in general, they're sure, uh, they're sure as hell not learning how to, to manage depression or anxiety. And so when they start losing jobs because their depression is too severe, you know, they fall, you know, they, they, they drop out of school. All of these things that we take for granted um, that they don't have any fallback mechanism. You know, typically they're, like I said, their parents are working three different jobs. One of them's in jail. One of them's a, uh, on meth because that person experienced so much mental health, their only out is to shoot up every day. You yeah, know? that's what my next question was gonna be is, is um, how does addiction play into this? Uh, you know, I think um, that's kind of the stereotype of someone mm -hmm. that's on the street experiencing homelessness is that they're, they're an addict. How, where, how does that play into this? 
So addiction is a very, very complex aspect of this. There's not one simple answer. So if you, you know, I'm going to tell you that there are people that are homeless because they became addicts for one reason or another, um, where they had good lives, they had the training, they had all the experience needed, but addiction took over and they became homeless because they lost everything. So that does exist. It is out there. I see that um, regularly enough. Um, those kinds of things are fascinating because those people tend to be genetically predisposed to addiction. And that's a thing that exists. And we know that opiates are more addictive to some people than they are to others. And if somebody's unlucky, they slip and fall, they break their arm and, and a doc gives them oxy, seven days later, they're addicted. And we didn't know in advance that that was their genetic code. And so now this person is searching for oxy but they're embarrassed by it because they see it or they, they were taught to see it as another moral failing, just like depression. And suddenly they have no resources because they're so embarrassed. And so this could happen to a kid, happen to a teenager, it can happen to an adult, it can happen to anybody. And if there's anybody sitting there listening saying, this can't happen to me, I'm sorry to tell you that it can't. And you don't know. You don't know if this can happen to you because it hasn't happened to you yet. It may or may not, but it can. So that is definitely one aspect of this. People can become addicts and it can destroy their lives. There are some people that choose to live in their addiction and you know, Oxy is just one of many things out there. Um, you know, one of the other situations I see a lot of is people that have such severe mental health, but they grew up in an environment that had no access to healthcare, they had no ha access to insurance. So, how are they going to get treatment for their mental health if they have no insurance? And up until recently, Medicaid wasn't expanded. It was impossible to get Medicaid coverage uh, for low-income families. And even then, in a lot of cases, Medicaid isn't going to cover that kind of treatment, a psychiatrist or a counselor, um, which is something that we take for granted because we are um, lucky enough to be financially sound, we can afford those things. But if somebody's growing up in a situation where they don't have enough money to make ends meet, to put food on the table, they're not going to try and find money to go to see a psychiatrist or an LCSW. And so if we have this severe mental health and it just happens to start coming across people that are using drugs, oftentimes what I see is self-medicating. They find access to a drug that takes the pain away. And it's yeah. pain in their mind. It, it, I, hate to, I hate to simplify it that much because it's more complex than that. But think about it as a, a, a situation in your mind that you cannot escape. This is a life situation that they have been unable to escape up until this point. And it's easier for them to just forget about it. And if that means they forget about it for an hour, two hours, four hours, for them, oftentimes that's enough to keep going. Um, and there's multiple different routes for that. Obviously, opiates are one, and meth is one, and marijuana. Um, you know, marijuana has its uses, but people do overuse it too. So there are, there are reasons for this. A lot of times people find themselves in addiction because they didn't have the medical resources to receive the treatment that would have prevented them from becoming an addict. Um, so it's, it's a multifaceted thing that is really complex and is just not simple enough to say they're just depressed, right? Yeah. So addiction plays a huge role in this because now you've got an addict who's going to come to me, for example, and say, Hey, you know, when I was, when I was 17, I was 
diagnosed with severe anxiety. I've never been able to manage it. I can't afford the medications for it. And so I've been using such and such drug to deal with it myself and I'm 37 years old now. What do I do? And I say, okay, well, the fact that you're using is important for us to know, but for right now, you need to know that we need to start working on your mental health first, because in order for them to be successful at uh, harm reduction with their addiction, um, then we have to at least help try to stabilize them on medications that will benefit them long-term. The problem we come across is here we are again with, there's no social mechanism here for these folks to get substance abuse counseling. Some churches have substance abuse counseling. There's Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous and things like that. But these aren't intensive inpatient, you know, type of situations where people can go for a month, be completely separated from the situation and try and break their addiction. Um, but let's say they were, let's say we've got them started on the medications and they're able to break that addiction, but they haven't gotten to a point now where they're stable enough to start making their money and get an apartment. So they're still at the shelter and they are surrounded by addiction. I don't, I, one of the things that I want to kind of drive home here is how difficult it is for somebody experiencing homelessness to break addiction. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. It is all around them all the time. And if anybody out there questions how difficult it is, it's like walking through a candy shop, not being able to eat candy. It's everywhere. It's that simple. So it's really incredibly difficult to provide that service for somebody that comes in. They, they're, they're broken. These are broken people. And they come to me and they say, I need help. And I say, okay, this is what I can do to help you right now. We have a challenge ahead of us when it comes to addiction. And we're going to have to cross that bridge a little bit at a time as we treat your mental health. But it's a challenge for me as a medical provider because we're so limited on resources. And so addiction is a major problem and it's multifaceted. And it goes back to that same concept of what was their, what was their lived experience before they got to where they were seeing me. And how many, how many of your patients life. come to you like that and are, um, I want help every you know? day, every day. I, I mean, I think, I think, I, I mean, this is, again, it's ignorant, but I, I sort of feel like I, I would just kind of think is your job is more just reactionary and just trying to put out fires all the time and not necessarily, you know, that they're coming to you with some, some sort of ailment and you're just putting something on it. Yeah. You know, so there's a large portion of my practice that I would say is Band-Aid medicine, right? Like, we can fix this now. We can fix this now. But if you come back, we can help you more. And in, in helping them understand that if they come back, they can get access to free care and free meds and, and it will help. But they've also been failed by a medical system for their entire lives. And for me to ask them to trust that we can help when for 40 years prior to that, nothing's been done for them it's hard for them to break that trust issue right so i do have a lot of those patch it now patch it now type of experiences but i i have every week i have several people that will come in and say to me i'm tired of doing drugs i need help help me get free from this and i have to look them in the eye and say okay 
we have to start from the beginning. However, there is no sub true substance abuse counseling access for you unless you have Medicaid, which I will say with the expansion of Medicaid that Utah finally did this year, um, it has opened doors to so many different options for our patients. And so this harkens back to a conversation that you and I have all the time is if we are good stewards of our community, if we are here to be a good community member, then yeah, our taxes should go towards the health and the care of our fellow community members so that they can get themselves free from addiction and they can get the help that they need. Um, and that's a part of being a healthy community is taking yeah. care of one another like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think you laid out, uh, you know, in this conversation, you laid out all the reasons why those people experiencing homelessness are not there because of their own moral failings. Mm -hmm. uh, that this is, has been a, a system and a process of their life that has led them to this place. Yeah. And if that's the case, um, they can't just pick themselves up by their bootstraps. They don't have bootstraps as Martin Luther King Jr. famously said. Yeah, um, I mean, paraphrasing you know, him, it's like, you, how, how rude is it to ask a bootless man to pull himself up by his bootstraps? Exactly. So how, I mean, if, so it, what we're saying is that, that there, and you just said that there is the only role here is for government to step in and provide services. And you talked just briefly there about how Medicaid has had done a lot for, for you in providing services so that you can help people. If you were uh, the governor tomorrow, what systems and what things would you put in place in order to help the people that are reaching out to you for help? Uh, I would immediately divert funds to the mental health services, the substance abuse services, and other basic um, social services in our community. Uh, we have people that are on the brink of homelessness, but don't have access to counseling, don't have access to medical care, and you know, are one paycheck away from becoming one of my patients. And so if we had a medical system that freed people from the worry of having to pay to be seen to get medical care, that would free that emotional bandwidth up for them to start caring or being more focused on other things in their life to like providing uh, uh, more for their children or for their adult parents who live with them and those kinds of things. So if we, if we simply opened up that freedom of somebody who is living on the edge that no longer has to worry about what happens if I get sick. You know, what happens if I go to the ER because somebody hit me with their car and I'm screwed now because you were $500 up front with $7,000, $8,000 of debt coming down the pipeline. And so if we can free people up from that and not only that, but allow them the peace of mind to know that, oh, my son has an addiction and I need help for him or her. You have free access to that. Um, you have free access to social services and social programs that can help you feed your kids. So you don't have to work three un, you know, uh, uh, part-time jobs that none of those part-time jobs offer you the option of having healthcare anyway. You know, so there's a number of things that, that if we could divert funds to these resources, this, this 
lowest of the low, these individuals that are experiencing the bottom of the barrel and you can't get any lower than they are, it would automatically start to lift some of that worry and allow them to use their mental resources to do things like get a job, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it really hit me when you talked about how you're standing in front of someone and telling them, I have some services that can help you. And yet they've been sowed distrust because of a system that has pushed, pulled them in and spit them out, um, mm -hmm. you know, because they don't have money. Yeah. And, and so here they are, they're finally, you know, they finally get to a place uh, where they can maybe get some help and they don't trust that help for a good reason. Yeah. You know, that, that's their lived experience. And we've got to stop that. We got yeah. to stop that chain yep. of, of events happening. And that goes back to our healthcare and mm -hmm. getting a way that we can, uh, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, Medicare for all, which we hope someday gets there. I personally do yeah. um, where we can, we, everyone's healthcare is free or um, you know, where you can enroll in, in Medicare, which is what hopefully will be a, a more interim option that will come through down the pike for us. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is a good conversation about how important that is and why that, why that's, that's so necessary. It's important for, for me to express that we need to have a healthy community. And the only way to do that is if we care about everybody in the community. It's the same as a public education. We, have, we pay taxes for a public education so that we can benefit from it because those kids have an education and can get a job and can con contribute to society. It is no different that with healthcare. In order to have a healthy community, in order to have a functioning community that is good for everybody there, that worry of what happens if I get sick or, or trying to make sure that a healthy community includes mental health and physical health, uh, you know, that's an important aspect of this. And I know that that can be a bit of a lightning rod subject, but if there's anything that I could, I want people to take home from this conversation is people experiencing poverty and people that are experiencing homelessness, the vast majority of the time are not a moral failure. They're a product of a system that we created and we are responsible for changing that system. Now, if you wanna to choose to ignore that system or what's broken about the system, that's on you. But there are those of us that choose to not ignore it and to wade into it to see whatever we can do to try and help. Um, and so these are people, they're human beings. There are neighbors and there are neighbors, kids in some cases, you know, there are people out there that, that you may not know that are living in homelessness. Um, and it's not a moral failure. It's not their failing. It's a system that failed them. It, it really is. And uh, man, I really appreciate you coming out or just coming on and just having this conversation. It was so good for me. So many of these things we have, we haven't really talked about that much. You know, I think yeah. sometimes because you know, your job's hard. Like it's yeah. really hard and we get together and we have a beer and it's like the last thing Van wants to talk about <laughs> is what he had to deal with at work today. Yeah. Um, so this was, this was good for me to get to, to know 
a little bit more about your experience and about how uh, we can better try as a society and how we can try to work towards a place where um, there can be less people experiencing homelessness and more people getting care. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's what we, that's what we want to see happen in the future. Tell me, leave us on a high note. What are you hopeful about right now and for the future? Uh, what am I hopeful about? Well, I mean, there's, there's a number of things that I think are going in the right direction. Uh, I think the last six months, granted COVID has been, been a bit of a hiccup for us all, but the social, understatement of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the social awakening that's happened over the last six months, while it has been divisive, it has also brought people into an understanding that they would not have had before. And maybe it's the Black Lives Matter movement that gets people to realize, well, wait a second, I do care about the experience that, that people of color have had in our nation. That means I should also care about the experience that, that people in poverty have had in our nation and, and sometimes people try to put pit those against each other right they do yeah all the time they're like oh no this is a poverty issue no this is a race issue well they're all intertwined right they're like all and, intertwined. and, and put so, that really well yeah the high note is there's there's a, a, a more awareness of another person's lived experience you and i've talked about this metacognition the ability to step back and think about your own thought processes there is more social awareness now than I think maybe ever. And that is a high note. I hope that it continues to ride high and that people continue to step back and think, whoa, that doesn't reflect my lived experience, but that means I need to stop and think about what their life was like before this. And maybe, just maybe, my decisions would have been the same as theirs if I had lived their life. And I think that's a positive. Granted, it, it, it took um, the death of hundreds of thousands of black people to get to this point. And that's, that's incredibly sad. Um, so the social movement now has to keep going in order to recognize and honor those people um, going forward. And I think that's a positive thing. And I think we're going to see a lot of continued change. And we're going to see a generation of kids raised with an understanding of respect and kindness for each other and an attempt to understand where somebody else is coming from. And I, I see that as an incredible positive. Absolutely. That is, that is an incredible positive. And I hadn't thought much about that, but we wouldn't be here having this conversation. Um, probably if it wasn't for COVID coming down on us, um, yep. for the Black Lives Matter movement, yep. uh, gaining, gaining traction, which I think us being in quarantine and in, uh, had a, an effect of solidarity mm -hmm. um, and had an effect that, you know, change and social change and yep. cognition and putting yourself in other people's footsteps, it hurts. And it, and yeah. we've, and we're in a point right now where like, I feel like we're taking on, you know, you were where we can think about those things deeply. And, and so I hope people are, that's the point of what we're doing here. That's the point yeah. of the podcast. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on and, and bringing your, your viewpoints. Happy to do it. We'll catch you later. All right. See ya. See ya.
And that's it for the show today. Big thanks for Van for coming on the show. Uh, also want to thank August the Great. Check out his stuff on Instagram for our theme music, our cover. Art is done by Decker Yazi. Uh, really appreciate him as well. I'm super happy. I love the way that it looks. And so we will see you guys next time. Go rate us on iTunes and smash that subscribe button. Yeah. It can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least, and a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. He told me around here, that's a lot of federal. I troll in the block, I swear it's hard, not the metal. Or that was just a peek at what the next man doing. The situation report, and just mess stand ruined. And you can find a liquor store or a pawn shop. They are thick with the alcohol. They be drinking nonstop, I swear. I, I hear the sell gats a click for real. Don't let me get in these facts, I dip. The government supplying the people crack for chip. Brainwashing the folks, every single cat's asleep. Though that Jim Crow side of fair trap in a mind state. And it seemed like we at a peak of the crime rate. My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing. And we down on the daily, some kill for the dime sake. I'd rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight. Half the people illiterate, can't read or write. Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your life. See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig. We don't get the graduate. We got trade up to the league with no second plan. Hoping we got it made into a gig. We need more doctors and lawyers, politicians and that. If you feel this in your heart, then I'm probably kicking the fat touche. And they talk, they ain't power and shout here. Everybody's dead broke and impoverished, shout sweat. I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes. The only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches. They rather get some brain and law that broad knowledge. Can't pay back selling me, and we can't afford college. Around here, the stake is always high, so they bang. Screaming, fuck the law. They rather leave and die for their gangs. They got nothing to lose, but they sick with hate. Mad at the world, we got a bone to peak with fate. So white privilege. For the kids to the slave master We were left for dead Designed to hit the great faster It's a setup And we ain't meant to survive Look how far we don't came We made it to this land of surprise Though the prophecy says We all been to a bride Spread the word Let it be known The heavens set to survive Right here live in the flesh That's real Americans ever got a ghetto <laughs> Volume 1